0: Well, hello, and thank you for joining us today for our uh, presentation on Back to Basics, a primer on advanced wound care modalities. My name is Dot Weir, and I'm joined today by Kathy Milne, a good friend and colleague. Uh, Kathy is with the Connecticut Clinical Nursing Associates in Bristol, Connecticut, and I'm in upstate New York at the Saratoga Hospital Center for Wound Healing and Hyperbaric Medicine. These are our disclosures. This is uh, some information. This is provided by HMP Education, uh, an HMP Global company, but it's supported by an educational grant from 3M Healthcare Medical Solutions Division. These are our objectives. I'm gonna talk about the wound healing process. I think it's important for us to sometimes be reminded. We throw a lot of things at wounds, but oftentimes I think it's helpful to step back and think what's going on in that wound and how can I change that trajectory? We'll talk about some wound bed preparation, look at some current modalities for wound care, highlighting compression therapy, negative pressure and advanced wound care dressings, and then determine uh, when and on what type of wounds to use uh, the variety of them. So let's get started. So I love thinking about how the human body heals. It's really quite fascinating and really quite amazing. And I think most of us in our uh, basic training have been taught about the wound healing phases. And I just want to point out a couple of things that I find very interesting about them. First of all, they are overlapping phases, but the first thing that's going to happen as soon as we become injured is we have to stop bleeding. They say all bleeding stops eventually, but this has to happen before healing can progress. So the vessels constrict, the platelets aggregate, and I'm going to talk more about that. And then they lay down some fibrin as a temporary uh, uh, barrier, if you will. And the clot is the end product. So when these platelets aggregate, this is very cool. So these all of our cells have little structures on their cell wall called integrins. And so when these platelets aggregate or begin to clump together at the end of the vessel, they sense in their environment with these little integrins that there's damaged collagen. Once they sense that, then they release the contents of a little uh, structure within the cell called an alpha granule. And that releases all of the initial growth factors, inflammatory cytokines, all, everything we need to begin that healing process. So what that, once that's done, hemostasis is really an event. It begins the true phases of wound healing. So the first thing that happens is normal inflammation. And I like to show this picture because if you're in wound care, every one of us have gotten a text like this. Somebody has hurt themselves within a couple of days. There's some redness there and they're sending it to us saying, do we need to go to the doctor? Do we need to have antibiotics? But this is actually the normal look to a wound that has recently occurred. So the key points of uh, for wound healing with inflammation is characterized by erythema, edema, heat, some discomfort, some tenderness. So I can see why people might think that it might be getting infected. But what happens is the endothelial cells, the lining of the vessels that are close to the wound begin to dilate uh, because the uh, mast cells that are in the area, w- once that vasoconstriction has occurred to stop the bleeding, the mast cells produce histamine and it causes the vessels to dilate dilate. This is the same thing when you have any kind of an allergic reaction on your skin, histamine is involved, the vessels dilate, you see redness. So you take an antihistamine to take that down. So in this case, we want this inflammation there, the vessels dilate, uh, different products can, uh, um, mediators can move through the vessel wall to begin the process of wound healing. One of those things of course, are the inflammatory cells. So they're going to come in and begin to clean up that wound bed. So some of the initial ones that are on the site are the neutrophils. They're there to help to start the cleanup, get rid of uh, dead cells, debris. And then later in inflammation, the the, uh, macrophages, one called an M1 macrophage comes in. The M1 macrophage initially starts to clean things up. And then the next thing that happens is it goes from an inflammatory and cleanup cell to a proliferative or a healing cell and begins to send out signals to start the next phase. And that is this phase, the proliferative phase. I like to look at the proliferative phase as sort of like building a structure of any kind because we've got to build up all the plumbing, build up all the structure in order to get that wound to fill in. So it's characterized by granulation tissue formation, the plumbing or the new blood vessels that are going to the area, wound contraction which is, and the epithelialization, which is the final phase. So protein synthesis is absolutely necessary for wounds to fill in with granulation tissue. And the real workhorse cell in our tissues is the fibroblast, stimulated by a variety of different growth factors. And so that initial matrix that we knew as the clot now changes to collagen and other extracellular matrix proteins to form granulation tissue. Now, the the primary uh, tissue, of course, is collagen as well as elastin in normal tissue, but in a healing wound, we have less elastin that's going to be produced. That's what gives our skin elasticity. And so that's why scars are more fixed and less elastic. So we also need to bring blood supply into the area. So this is another very amazing thing that our body does. About two days in, our bodies begin to recognize that it's had lost some of its blood supply because the tissue has been injured. And the body will recognize that it's, uh, because of it's an, it's an injury, there's more of an acidic pH. There's a decreased oxygen tension because of the lack of vessels from the injury, uh, high lactate levels. And so what happens is that now we've got this very high energy um, environment. A lot of cells are working hard to get this to heal. So they're consuming a lot more oxygen. The body needs to get oxygen to that area. And so you have new little vessels that sprout off from adjacent capillaries. And I liken it to plants growing towards light. These vessels grow towards area of hypoxia. We see angiogenesis and other things when we see collateral circulation that occurs around the heart, uh, down into the lower extremities, the body really wants to do everything it can to send more oxygen to the area. And so it's called angiogenesis. I know this is a little busy slide and I can't really point, but what I just want to point out or I'll tell you about is that that kind of area in the distance is where the injury is. So some factors are released that will tell the endothelial cells, the cells lining the capillaries that we need to sprout some new blood vessels. And so the uh, they're stimulated by a growth factor. The cells begin to migrate out as little buds. The buds form a, a closed lumen, and then that lumen forms a loop. And that's that loop that you see extending into that damaged area. And it's something that our bodies do simply because it recognizes that it needs more oxygen. And I just think that's an amazing thing that our body these are able to do. So now we have a bigger space. And if it's a wound with a large area, that is uh, of tissue loss, then our bodies are also going to try to make that area smaller. This happens more in areas of very lax tissue, like the abdomen, the thigh, the buttocks, the calves, areas that don't have lax tissue, like your, your ankles, Your anterior tibial area, take your venous leg ulcers, for example, usually when those heal, they have about the same size. the scar has about the same size and shape of the original wounds because that tissue doesn't contract there. But where you have more lax and loose tissue, there's specialized fibroblasts at the edges that begin to have contractile forces that pull those edges in. Again, the way our body reduces the surface area in the area that needs to be healed. And it happens really at a pretty good rate. And you can watch this, especially if you have a patient that has a larger womb, one that we're using negative pressure wound therapy, for example, because that helps to increase that rate of contraction. These are just some examples, and I don't care how long you've been doing wound care. If you can't look at these huge wounds at the top row and then look at the bottom row and say, wow, you know, that's wound contraction at its best. We see a much smaller scar than what our original wounds look like. So then we need a roof on this structure. All that has filled in. And if it was a partial thickness wound, you've still got a lot of the structures in the tissues, such as your hair follicles, your sweat glands. And what those will do is new, uh, those are lined with epithelial cells. So if you haven't lost your entire dermis, then you'll begin to see epithelialization at little points within the wound. And a lot of times people will look at this and say, oh my gosh, I got to scrub them off. But these are actually little islands of epithelium that will now migrate out. Uh, They begin to epithelialize also from the edge. They coalesce and then the wound becomes completely resurfaced. So then once the wound is completely closed, the job's not done all that very rapidly synthesized granulation tissue that was produced during that proliferative phase and filling in that wound is mostly type three. And so we need it to be back more towards type one because it'll have more strength to it. So over the next couple of years, your body's going to send in proteases, which I'll talk about in a bit. And then at the same time, it will start to break down that rapidly synthesized collagen Fibroblasts are brought back in. It resynthesizes collagen uh, more, or in a more organized fashion along stress lines. And so you'll have a more durable and stronger scar. This takes a couple of years, sometimes, and especially in large wounds, but it will eventually happen. But as I mentioned before, there's less elastin, so the scar is not going to have as much stretch and give as we see with normal skin. So what I just described was expected wound healing. This is how people are supposed to heal. But what we all take care of are those that have unexpected things happen. We have a challenging journey in front of us. And now it's up to us to recognize what are the barriers that we can overcome in order to get these wounds to heal. I just described acute wound healing, the way we transfer through those phases of wound healing in a normal fashion. When we look at some of the patients that we take care of, something has interrupted all of those, one of those phases. Usually something happens that sends it back into chronic inflammation, but something has happened to interfere with normal wound healing. And so we, it's up to us to look around and try to figure out what has gone wrong. And if we're uh, providing uh, standard evidence-based standard of care, then something is happening at the wound level. So when we call them chronic wounds, that makes you think if it's a chronic thing, it may be something that somebody has for life, like chronic kidney disease or chronic heart failure. Uh, But what we're talking about are hard to heal wounds. Wounds that have, you know, we have some patient barriers that we can overcome. We can help them get their glucose under control. We can hopefully help them to lose weight, improve their perfusion. But there are wound barriers that we can control and that we can try to overcome. uh, Not really addressing the etiology correctly. Um, Unhealthy tissue, bacteria, biofilm that might be there, alternate uh, pH that's uh, um, uh, not uh, adequate or ideal, proteases and edema. And we'll talk about a few of those, but it's our job in the chronic wound or the hard to heal wound to find out what those barriers are. So we're going to know and support the etiology. Of course, we have to know what the perfusion is. We'll compress venous leg ulcers. We're going to, hopefully, if we have arterial issues, that we're going to be able to address those and revascularize and protect the wound. We're going to offload the person who has diabetes of plantar foot ulcers, as well as those who have pressure injuries. And we also want to make sure that when we're looking at some sort of skin injury in an area that that might be construed as a pressure injury, that it really is, and it's not moisture associated skin damage. And then... There's a whole host of things uh, and our providers are those that help us to figure these out. People like Kathy, they do biopsies to see is this really a venous leg ulcer or do we have something else going on? Maybe it's a cancer. Uh, maybe they have if they have an autoimmune disease, we always want to be suspicious that it's some sort of um. Uh, other kind of ulcer. So having a low threshold for biopsy early on may lead us to taking care of them with medicine and and, uh, other medical therapy, as well as topical therapy. We have to respect the bacteria that's there. Uh, I think most people agree that there are uh, bacterial biofilms in the wound, but we have to watch for any subtle changes or dramatic changes in the wound bed. Exudate that increases, odor that increases, a change in the quality or the quantity of the tissue. Maybe the wound was moving on in a perfect trajectory and now it has stopped. Pain that that wasn't there before, Er, erythema way outside of the time when we would expect normal inflammation, any kind of purulent material, Uh, but just a delay in wound healing should trigger a thought in us that, hmm, I wonder what's going on. We want to culture wisely and a, a culture when we intend to treat that culture. We don't want to culture everyone, but we do want to culture if we feel like well, this person we've done a clinical diagnosis of infection and we need to treat them with antibiotics. We want to use topical antimicrobials early in, in our um, uh, treatment of the wound if we feel like they're warranted and then stop them when we don't need them anymore because we want to practice antimicrobial stewardship just like we practice, um, antibiotic. And then of course, something I really go <laughs> love to talk about is that we have to practice good wound hygiene. We have to do good cleansing, uh, of the wound and the peri wound in order to keep the surface free of debris and help to reduce those factors that could influence bacterial growth. Something I've been more interested in lately is the impact of pH on the wound environment, because this really can indirectly and directly influence many of the biochemical um, reactions and uh, um, activities in our wound surfaces. Bacteria will produce ammonia, and so it results in an alkaline environment. And when the pH of a wound begins to go up, there's a lot of things that will uh, happen that could stall that wound healing. Bacteria love an, um, a more um, alkaline environment. Proteases, which I'll talk about, love an alkaline environment. And uh, many times the oxygen diffusion is going to be better when we can lower that pH to a more normal uh, level, at least in trying to inch it down towards the five point, point five and a half to six and a half range. This can be done through the use of good wound hygiene, through the use of good wound cleansers that are pH balance, but it's always going to enhance our wound healing when we can get that pH down to a normal level. So matrix metalloproteases, uh, they're really proteinases. I I really started, I just thought about this recently. I, I, this is probably a misnomer because proteases um, are enzymes that it can impact when healing. So there's matrix metalloproteinases, and then there's some others um, uh, proteases such as neutrophil elastase, but nonetheless, we call them MMPs. These are a family of protein degrading enzymes that are produced by cells and they're absolutely necessary. And I can't point to this picture that I made up here, but let's just say I'm a cell sitting at the edge of the wound. I'm an epithelial cell and I need to migrate out for me to do that. I'm attached to the basement membrane and I'm attached to my friend behind me. I need to produce a protease to cleave myself off of those and be able to move. If I'm a fibroblast and I need to move through tissues, I have to produce a protease to move through tissue. So protease is a very necessary part of the uh, repair process and of the movement of cells. What happens though, And especially again, when we go back to a wound that has a lot of exudates that have bacteria present, um, that have a higher pH, then we're going to have an overproduction of the proteases. so it causes some off target destruction. In other words, these proteases now are going to say, I'll take anything protein. So they start breaking down granulation tissue. They start breaking down the cell structure, such as the integrins that cells need to mobilize. So they become very destructive. And so what we want to do is to try to lower them also. So now I'm going to turn it over to Kathy to tell us, so what can we do about all this?
1: Thank you, Dot. Uh, thank you for coming today. I really appreciate it. Uh, so, you know, when we talk about advanced wound care modalities, you really have to think about what Dot had talked about earlier. You have to think about the pH. You have to think about wound hygiene. You have to Think about addressing MMP levels and bacterial levels, and also trying to figure out if you got your diagnosis correct to start with. So you have to start walking. And so look at your patient, look at your wound. And I always like to think about the patient's environment. We usually see them in the clinic, maybe in the hospital. Uh, home health really has, has the best view of the patient because they see where they really live. They see the barriers that the patient is faced with every single day. They may look in their kitchen cabinets and see tons of salt. They may see lots of cigarette butts in the ashtray. Um, And then we have to start addressing all those underlying etiologies and do that wound, good wound get bread prep that Dot has talked about. Um, I think we need to, I think we're all pretty cognizant about addressing the wound, but we really need to start thinking about that peri wound skin. And then we've got to think about, Hey, how can we think? What are the potential complications this person may have? Could they have cellulitis? Could they, um, end up? having uh knocking off a vessel, losing a limb. So we have to start thinking about how we can reduce the potential complications and the known complications. So when do advanced therapies really make sense? Well, you know, Dot already talked about it, the hard to heal wound. You have to, if you identify a hard to heal wound and not by a timeframe, but by the patient characteristics, the wound characteristics, you can early. So if they don't have any improvement, now, some of us have a a larger threshold than others. And you start reading the literature, you'll see, you know, four weeks, two weeks, 30 days. Uh, Really, when when dot said you should see that wound move a little bit each time you see the patient. So keep them on a short leash. If they're not moving, that's already a hard to heal wound and you've got to act early. Size matters. Here's a great picture. You're not going to heal this with just um, a topical dressing over a short period of time. You're going to need something advanced. If they have a lot of exudate, so exudate is really a symptom of some of the issues going on, especially if you have a lot of it in terms of bacteria and high MMP levels. So you have to think, I need an advanced wound therapy for that. And then if your patient's either very engaged, they're going to have already seen Dr. Google and will have come to you asking for an advanced therapy. Or if your patient is not engaged at all, you may need to um, get an advanced therapy early on so you can close this wound faster. I love this schematic. It's old, but it's one of those classic articles. And I always kind of go back to this sometimes because I know that, yeah, my wound's not looking good. I should look at the patient, relook at the wound related factors. But you know, there's other things that we forget about, and it's we know how to take care of the wound, but who else is taking care of the wound? Is it the home health nurse? Is it uh, a nursing aide? Is it a private caregiver? Uh, so who else is seeing the patient? Remember, a lot of people don't get any basic education about wound care in their training. It could be a, a resident who's, who's managing this patient. They're going to know a lot less than you. So it's you have to incorporate what they know or don't know into your plan of care. And then what kind of resources can you get? Uh, a lot of, and, and also think about the environment. Think about the floods and the hurricanes and the earthquakes we've all been having. You might have the perfect system and it can all go away in, in one storm. So now you can start jogging. So, um, you know, are, are you going to, Think You need to start thinking about what is this patient going to need? You have so many choices out there and you can see the list here uh, and and you have to figure out what is the best option for the patient. And maybe there may be several options, but at least you can start to do something while you're trying to fine tune the plan of care. So I'm just going to talk really about advanced wound care dressings, compression and negative uh, pressure wound therapy, because all of these Subjects here, these these dots or or bullets, have at least an hour that you can talk about. So let's talk about advanced wound care dressings. There's several thousand of them, over 3,100, I think, at the last count. So when you're looking at an advanced wound dressing, use what I call a 3F approach. That is, what's its function? What is that dressing or modality supposed to do? You need to know that right up front. So don't think about the brand. Think about what that function is. Think about what form is it in. Uh, is it in a gel? Is it in a uh, hydrofiber or a gelling fiber? Is it um, in a in a foam with negative pressure? So you've got to figure out what form you plan to give it in or what will be the best match for the patient and the patient's wound. And then you're gonna to have to figure out the differences just because they're in one category, let's say negative pressure wound therapy, or should we say a uh, foam dressing. There are a lot of differences between brands. And this is where you're gonna to have to do your homework, um, go uh, do a quick literature search, call your sales trip. If you have questions, each company has a medical sales or a medical liaison and you can call them. They can answer some of the questions that the sales reps cannot answer for you. So let's talk about some drainage management. Uh, when you do uh, and use a topical dressing, you have to make sure it conforms to the entire wound bed for it to be therapeutic. And you have to pack those tunnels and those undermined areas loosely. And we are really going to be concentrating on both the absorbency, burden, and inflammation. And also you have to figure out how often do you want to change, because it depends your clinical setting, how often that can happen. Home health is usually three days a week. Uh, wound centers can sometimes do every day. Sometimes they can do three times a week, sometimes only once a week, depending on uh, the clinical situation. Uh, acute care settings can probably do things every, you know, four to six hours if they need to. So when we talk about um, advanced wound dressings, I'm going to really concentrate on superabsorbance and collagen today. When we look about exudate, we have to also remember that there are other causes of exudate other than bioburden and high. MMP levels. So sometimes you want to look and go back to your patient. Are they having problems with their heart failure? Should we be looking at their meds and seeing we how we can adjust them? Especially canal, calcium channel blockers, they really do add a lot of swelling to the lower legs and can add to that exudate level. Your patient may have exudate from your wound and also from a, a more uh, medical problem too. So you may have to address both. Dot already discussed inflammation, and this is just another schematic about how your bacteria get in there. You actually uh, have that um, increased colonization, which we now call systemic or localized infection before it becomes systemic infection, and all the uh, irritation, really, that the bacteria provides that actually causes an inflammatory exudate. This is a great picture using a biofluorescence device that shows you that it's not necessarily the wound that's going to give you the problem. You have a lot of inflammation and actually over colonization of the skin surrounding the wound. So not only do you have to deal with the wound, you really need to address and protect the peri wound. And you can see it, the picture over on the left. Yeah, you know that you have some macerated tissue there. But when you see how much bacteria is captured by that hyperkeratotic tissue and just serves as such a breeding ground for bacteria that just essentially hop back into the wound and give you more problems. So um, again, uh, wound hygiene is, is of utmost importance. Kathy, I want
0: to just add into this, we also can fluoresce our wounds and, and I would say more bacteria, this is showing more pseudomonas that we see a lot of, uh, of staff and other things too, but um, is in the peri wound and macerated skin. Oh my gosh, is probably the worst. So we really working on your absorbent products is such a critical piece here.
1: And that's a great segue because what's a super absorbent made of? Well, um, there's really three things that can be a uh, for boxy methyl cellulose, it can be a polyacrylate, or it can be a super absorbent polymer. So they can also contain other things. And you can see that list there. But really, your goal is, is to get a super absorbent that's going to stay intact and absorb all that exudate without breaking apart. And while they do this, you also have to make sure they can sequester both the bacteria and the high levels of matrix metalloproteases that are are floating around. I like to think of a super absorbent. We all know that that uh, when you get meat from the from the grocery store, it comes with that um, little layer, and it that is a, a super absorbent. Uh, super absorbents are really better at exudate management than foam dressings. I know that. Uh, you know they've been around for a while in the U.S. and they really haven't taken off the way they really should. Have you? Do you find that? Dot. I agree. I, I agree. Yeah, especially I agree. when you look at the at the literature here. Um, you know, we know that the the literature basically says they are much better than foam dressings, and people just really haven't made the the conversion the way they probably should. Um, and uh, we we know that they make this bond. To, to sequester both bacteria and matrix metalloproteinases, And that's what we want to get rid of in the world. And, and I think it's
0: important to know your dressings. There are multi-layer foams that are more super absorbent than normal foam. So it's, there, there, are, there are so many levels of super absorbents now. And so some of them are foams, but they, you need to know how your foam is
1: going to handle action for sure. Right. And that's where you ask your rep what's in it. Um, because a lot of these multi-layer foams have super absorbent components in them. But when you consider a super absorbent dressing, you have to figure out, uh, do you want it A, with a border, without a border? Can you get it on and off? Uh, Can you, uh, does it manage the microclimate? A a super absorbent that essentially might have an occlusive covering on it will just rain uh, moisture back into The wound and the peri wound skin. And you also want to be able to have the right size dressing for the patient's wound. Here are some of the tips that I like to think about when I use a super absorbent dressing. Uh, You have to remember, you can use this as a primary dressing or a secondary dressing. Uh, Some can be cut. Or folded and some cannot be cut because you're actually going to disrupt the contents uh, into the wound and the peri wound area. Uh, Some have a special absorption side so you need to know what side that is and your colleagues who are also doing the dressing changes also need to know what size. Some can be left up to seven days. Uh, Some really have a three day. So again, reading the product insert can be really important. However, what's really important, if especially when you're if you're practicing in the U.S., is that in the U.S. the Medicare surgical dressing policy says you can apply these on a daily basis. So that's really important. So if you're thinking about it, you want something to be done daily, um, this is a, a great opportunity to use a dressing that will actually be covered. Uh, you have to also. Ask around because there are differences between when you put these under compression. The it you may not get the absorption that the uh, dressing says it's going to get, and that's kind of like buying a car and it tells you in the, on the lot that the gas mile mileage is thirty miles thirty miles per gallon, and you're only getting fifteen. And that's because the compression will prevent that dressing from expanding, and then the it also can impact how many how much compression that's actually applied. You might think you're giving 40, but maybe you're giving 33. So those are some of the questions that you want to ask when you are contemplating which dressing that you are getting. Um, And again, they are all different in how much bacteria and how much absorption and how much MMP sequestration that they have. And it's only good if you can get it. So, um, you, here is the guidelines from the Medicare surgical dressing policy. So your documentation supports whether or not your patient can get this. So your patient must have a full thickness wound and it must have at least moderate to heavy exudate. If you're going around saying it's scant or it's mild, you're not, your patient's not going to get it. Now, the problem with the super absorbents is that everybody's view, they actually absorb so well, some of them, that what you think is a large amount when you pour it into the dressing only looks like about that much in the super absorbent itself because it, is, it wicks and sequesters things away in that you can't see it. So people are saying it's mild drainage or, or scant drainage when it actually is moderate to heavy. So... Get to know your dressing really well and so you have the right documentation because if you don't, if you don't, your patient will not get the dressing you need. Let's move on to collagen. So collagens come in a lot of uh, formats and they come from a lot of sources. They can come from pigs and horses and sheep and cows and roosters. Um, and you can have them from fish and plants and they can be actually made in a factory now, and they come in a number of uh, forms. So gels, powders, uh, sponges. And we actually are starting to see the uh, proliferation of uh, dressings that are nanoparticles and nanofibers. uh, With scaffolding, we're starting to see things come out in 3D ink that's uh, in some trials now. And um, you also see people reading Dr. Google and having some ingestible supplements, which some of the ingestible supplements do have some evidence to support their use. Now, how do they work? Well, they actually act as a scaffolding and they uh, will bind those matrix metalloproteinases. But one of the important things, and Dot mentioned about the inflammatory uh aspect of elastase, well, they will reduce those elastase levels, and they uh, can also act as a way to deliver antimicrobial agents. Now, collagen can be either native, it can be partially denatured, it can be fully denatured, and those denatured collagens can be either hydrolyzed or non-hydrolyzed. And it's important to ask about how the collagen you're buying for your patient or your patient is receiving is how it's being delivered. I love this story because it, it makes me think um, of when you, you know, there's those old fashioned movies. I think even almost Home Alone, I think, did this, too, where uh, you try to fool the robbers right by uh, or the robbers try to fool the dog by throwing the dog a piece of meat and so the dog leaves the, the 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 robber and the bad guy and goes and chews on the bone and the meat and is very very happy well this is really what collagen will do for you um, it will um throw the bone to the Matrix metalloprotease and so they um the fibrobl- uh, the the MMPs go running over there because they're starving for um, the collagen. And so because they've already degraded, they've eaten everything they can, and now they're, they're still hungry. So you can actually improve and improve your um, fibroblast recruitment because you are taking away those MMPs and reducing those levels. And we do know that you can actually have, um, it's a protective effect for certain growth factors, including um, VEGF and PDGF. And we know that it can bind them and then re-release them over a period of time. So as your MMP levels come down, your growth factors can actually do what they need to do. I think what people forget sometimes is that MMPs
0: just don't work on tissue. Uh, It it works on anything protein. So the growth factors that you want to be there are going to be, again, they can be degraded by those, those MMPs.
1: Now there are some advantages to hydro- hydrolyzed collagen. Uh, really, when when you go from the the native collagen all the way to hydro hydrolyzed, so what happens is your body will take a native collagen and it will chop it up, and uh, it's when there are those tiny tiny pieces that's when your body can use them. So when you're using a hydrolyzed collagen, you're actually saving your your wound from doing. For, doing extra work. And so you're providing those little bits of collagen. Uh, and when you have those little bits of collagen, you're going to actually improve your neutrophil recruitment to your site, improve your macrophage concentration. And then um, again, that's when you're binding uh, and re-release and protecting your growth factors. And again, the studies show that there is slow re-release in back into the wound bed. There are a lot of additives to collagen. Uh, the most common one that we see are alginates, and it's just used for uh, to absorb exudate. Now, alginate is really a seaweed, and um, it does provide kind of a another cross linked material uh, for binding uh, bacteria. And it will, uh, some of the alginates will have some elasticity to the dressing. ORC is another additive, it's actually uh, the one that is out there is 45% oxidized regenerated cellulose, 55% collagen, collagen which is bovine, uh, it is bioresorbable, and uh, you can, the ORC is actually a common dressing that we have seen in the operating room to provide for hemostasis. So I have actually used this, not for heavy bleeding, but if I got a little ooze, I can this on um, especially after uh, a uh, split thickness skin graft that seems to really help me at that donor site uh, it does rapidly bind those proteases and the nice thing is is that dot already talked about you need to reduce that ph level and so it helps to do that and uh, when you do that you also um, when you have this plus your collagen, it's better than either one alone. So it's really a, a synergistic effect. And if you want to read all the papers, I would suggest reading anything by Greta Cullen. Um, her work has been out there probably since the early 2000s. Um, this reference is, uh, gives a, a really good overview from 2017.
0: So let me, let's, let's look at a case where that was exactly what was needed. This is a, this is a gentleman who had a recurrent venous ulcer. As you can see by the scar tissue surrounding that wound. that, so we already know it's going to be tougher to heal. The peri wound was a little bit macerated. It was thickened. Um, so we did some debridement. We used absorbent dressings. Then we put them into a two layer compression wrap. So the wound. Moved along, but I mean, you're looking, you know, four months later and it was looking a little better, but it surely wasn't not getting, you know, slamming shut by any stretch. We continued to use two layer compression. He was a very adherent to uh, wearing his compression and coming in for his visits. And we tried just everything but the kitchen sink on this. So one of the things that uh, when we we would debride them, like, you know, if you think, oh, we got to just freshen up the surfaces of the womb. But at this point we decided, you know, maybe it's a destructive hostile environment. So we did start a collagen dressing that contained the ORC and silver. Um, now I put it on two layers because I needed it to, and, 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 the interesting thing about collagen dressings, any of them, but, um, the faster you see it break down, then you know, you have more matrix metal proteases They're they're deep, um, they're, uh, breaking down the dressing, uh, much more rapidly as you, as your wound begins to get better and you see more and more dressing stay behind, then you know that you've reduced your, it's a good clue that you've reduced your protease level. So we were put. we moistened it, we put it on double layer because we were, going to be only still changing it on a weekly basis so we continue the two layer compression and a week later it was significantly smaller but healthier more robust looking granulation tissue and four weeks later he was completely closed so you, you know there's no dipstick that i mean there are but we don't have them in the us very easily but there's no dipstick that says oh your protease levels are way out of whack It's many times trial and error, but always think of a hostile environment uh, that might have a proteolytic environment when you're just not seeing things move on and you know they're not infected and you're doing all the right stuff.
1: We also have hydrogels in collagen. Again, if you have a very dry wound, this might be a thought uh, and it will actually stabilize the denatured collagen just because it's swollen up. And other additives, you'll actually find antimicrobial agents such as silver or PHMB in there, um, but also non-antimicrobials, EDTA, which actually shows um, has some effect against reducing bacterial counts in the wound by um, kind of stripping some of the structure that the bacteria are in. This is uh, my, one of my patients with a collagen dressing. So he fell at his wife's funeral, um, and he cut his head. And now this, and scalp wounds bleed a lot. So, and these and scalp wounds heal really quickly. Um, but this guy is, is three weeks out and he still is open. Uh, he is washing it every day, uh, with a antimicrobial soap, which was pH balanced, and it just really wasn't going anywhere. Um, and so when I saw him, I said, well, what's probably going on is that we probably, we've, done, we've probably gotten rid of the bacteria, but we just have high levels of matrix metalloproteases. So I need to uh, get get those down and reduce that pH. So um, I placed a collagen on the wound. And seven days later, I'm looking great. So um, really, very quickly, that's really what my issue was. Kathy, when I see a
0: case slam shut like this, I always think we should have that. Um, uh, your individual results may vary like the diet.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> I do have some... I do have some tips working with collagen. And you already alluded to this. It may disappear. Um, A lot of times I get the phone call, I don't think the person in front of, you know, so and so did the dressing because I don't find the collagen in the wound. Well, that's good because it's doing its job. So if you don't see it, uh, don't worry about it. Sometimes those collagens turn this weird green, like a little kid with a runny nose green. Don't worry about that either. If you do your good wound hygiene, you're going to be fine. But you got to let your patient know because you're going to get a call, call about that. Know your patient. Remember, collagen is an animal product. If your patient is a vegan, he, this person may or may not, depending on how on the continuum of, of uh, their beliefs are, may or may not want um, an animal product to be used um, on their body. Some people have religious beliefs. Beliefs that they don't want to, they can't use pork or they can't use beef. So you have to respect that. So you need to know where your collagen is coming from. And then of course you can, some people will have allergies, uh, especially if you're using collagen, um, out, outside, um, the U S you can tell if they're going to be allergic because, um, they will use pork insulin. So if they're allergic to pork insulin, they may be allergic to the pork related collagen, uh, don't expect miracles overnight. So as Dot said, your your results may vary. I always think it takes about two weeks before I see some type of result um, in the wound. And usually it's a robust, uh, more robust color, but definitely the exudate levels start to um reduce. And as dot had that picture, and then this picture, you can stack your collagen. Again, can your patient get these? It depends on your documentation. So, um, your wound must be full thickness, and it must have minimal to moderate exudate. So, if you're talking heavy exudate and your document documenting heavy exudate, you're not going to get this paid. Uh, remember, individual policies may vary, and but your documentation may support its use. Remember, it's the you get your the medicare surgical policy is based on your primary dressing so if you're using a collagen um, and um, with a super absorbent um, you can't say you have heavy exudate because it's not going to be covered and uh, how often will you be able to change it so here is up to seven days Now, let's move on to compression. So, this is a whole four hour lecture, um, but briefly, there are short stretch bandages. So, you cannot stretch that more than 70%. You have your multi layers. So, some of them is a short stretch. And then you have another layer or two layers because there are two, three and four layer, uh, compressions that can actually have a variety of extension. And then your long stretch, which is also known as an ACE wrap. So you can really stretch that a lot. So, um, so here are some other names for things. So they can be elastic or inelastic or mixed um and how they come. There's a really great uh document. It's called the Stride document, which really it's probably 20 pages dot you think, Stride, uh, but explains how these the components of all these compression uh um materials are made, whether it's knitted, whether it's no uh woven, and how just the construction of the compression itself can impact what kind of pressures uh, you're getting and how things can actually adhere to the leg and not roll down or ball up. So I advise you to look up, um, it's called Stride, S-T-R-I-D-E. And I think it's the Journal of Wound Care that has that. And here's a compression case, um, a 58 year old female. She has a history of hypertension. She's had leg swelling for over 10 years uh, and her primary care provider, uh, treated this with bacitracin, abdominal gauze, uh, and a gauze wrap uh, for three months. And guess what? It didn't really get better. Why? Because we really didn't under un, address the etiology of what's causing the swelling. Uh, she was on a calcium channel blocker uh, when I originally saw this patient. Um, the first, you, sometimes you don't have to do everything all at once with these patients because. You have to get some of the results back. And sometimes it you can't get things turned around in two or three hours. And even sometimes it takes a couple of days to get all the testing done. Um, we did do an ABI, which we could do in the clinic. Uh, and we did send her out for the ultrasound to make sure she didn't have a DVT. I probably would have, um, if I was in Las Vegas, I probably would have bet that she did looking at uh, that left calf, but she didn't. So that's good. Uh, we got some venous uh, duplex studies to make sure uh, we knew what we were dealing with. We had to see if we had an obstruction um, versus the valve or, uh, or reflux or valve incompetence. And then, uh, in the meantime, what I did was put a silver gelling fiber on uh, and a foam dressing because I knew, just looking at this, I probably had at least some bacterial bio burden that I had to deal with. Uh, what I did was just do some some light tubular compression. I knew my ABI was pretty good. Um, but if I hadn't, I didn't know my results from my DVT. So I just thought I'll, I'll go go slow to start with and bring her back in a week. So her, negative, her DVT was negative. Um, we got her off of her calcium channel blocker to help reduce the swelling. But you know what? She needed um, ablation and she didn't want it. So we started with a two-layer compression system and we stayed with the same wound care. Uh, She's doing well with the compression. The wounds are starting to get a lot smaller. We got the edema down. Um, And on week four, we changed over to an ORC collagen. Uh, And the wound continued to improve. And um, this is the point where you really need to order compression garments because the wound still has to be open. And she did not really want to address the underlying issue. uh, And she was still refusing ablation. We did get her into 30 to 40 uh, millimeter uh, mercury compression socks. Uh, we got her an OT console because we want to make sure she could get them on and off. And um, we really spent a, a lot of time concentrating on all those little flaky things that harbor bacteria. And at this point, we only needed a foam dressing, and she closed on week eight. So here um, is another. A case example where we actually did collagen plus a super absorbent plus compression. And you can see that, uh, our, our wound responded fairly well and fairly quickly because we're addressing the patient and the metabolic issues going on in the wound and the underlying etiology. Here's some tips for compression. Uh you can, so some compression's always better than no compression, even if your ABI is not ideal. You'll you'll always hear, oh, you can't do any compression unless their their ABI is over nine. You can you can really push them to, I push mine to like 0. 0.4 or 0. 0.5. What about you, Dap? Or yeah, using light compression. Yeah, light compression. Um, and you can always negotiate with your patient. A lot of times they will they'll say it's too much. So start light and you can always gradually go up. You'll have to adjust that patient's shoe wear because once they're in a multi-layer compression stocking, their shoes are not going to fit. So you're going to have to talk about that. And then again, um, be wary of what I call the two H's, which is holidays and heat. Uh, Heat will make your legs swell no matter what, even though you're doing a grand job with compression. And holidays, uh, actually people... Do a lot of different things they normally wouldn't do. For example, um, in, I live in the Northeast. There is a, a high hemp intake population at Easter time. And so everybody's legs fall apart right after Easter. Um, a <clears throat> couple
0: other things and I know we're running out of time, but, um, one of the things too is, is have more than one type of compression. Sometimes we have to start with four layer because we have to build up the leg, but as their, as their volume goes down, we can get them into the two layer, which they, they feel like they're graduating because it works. So it feels so much more comfortable and expect more drainage when you first start, because you're reducing the volume, that fluid's going to go somewhere. So you may need a more absorbent dressing until you get the leg volume down.
1: I think negative pressure uh, wound therapy has been the game changer. Uh, You can use it in all of these types of wounds. And and how does this work? So you have uh, a number of varieties of uh, negative pressure. So your traditional negative pressure actually um, does both micro strain uh, at at this micro so at the cellular level to actually stretch those cells to actually upregulate regulate the uh, RNA and cell replication. And they do strains. So you're actually drawing your, your wound edges together um, and in the process, removing infectious bacteria, reducing edema and therefore promoting perfusion. So we also have negative pressure wound therapy with installation. So this is where you would actually place your uh, foam dressing into your wound bed and you actually instill fluid into the area and it sits and dwells for a predetermined amount of time, which you can actually program. And what this does is actually, I always kind of think of it as like having somebody do your dishes and soaking your your pans for a couple of days because it actually, the, the short durations actually will dilute and break up all that thick infectious and material and that wound debris that's really literally stuck to that wound bed. And um, this cycle uh, cleans it out. And again, you still are getting the uh, macro strain and the micro strain delivered to your wound bed. And then uh, another game changer is the closed incisional negative pressure wound therapy. Uh, and this actually is designed to have over- enclosed incision. And because the negative pressure uh, will actually uh, displace a lot of the edema away from the surgical incision, you actually are improving in uh, perfusion and lymphatic flow to that area. Uh, We also know it's been associated with reduction in uh, seroma and hematoma formation. And actually what they have found long-term is that your scar strength is much better than without using closed incisional negative pressure wound therapy. So you have a lot of options. And that with tips is that no, no, all foams are not created equal. The, uh, size of the, uh, open foam, the reticulated open cell foam dressing actually can vary. Uh, and the size of the foam really matters. Because um, some of the uh, most of the studies have been done with um, the reticulated open cell foam, the ROCF, and uh, the way the uh, medical devices work is that as long as you have pretty much the same concept, you don't have to prove that you're as good as somebody else, you're just approved. So you do have to think about um, looking at the literature and looking to see, what and what product you have and if the foam size of the cells or the cells in the foam size actually are supported in uh, a literature approach. So um you may, as Dot said, just like compression, as patients improve, you may be changing the way you are using your negative pressure wound therapy. You might might start out with installation, you might move to traditional, and then as the patients go home, you might use um, closed incision, or you may end up going to a portable device and making their life a million times better. And that's the disposable negative pressure wound therapy. Uh, It's tolerated really well. The patients really feel like they have graduated and they are less anxious and you can be very discreet, so you can go off to the grocery store and nobody will know that you have this device on you and that you have this wound. And then um, there is combination therapy. There's only currently only one uh, approved negative pressure wound device and one collagen that can be put together. Um, here's a patient with, when using that uh, combination therapy. This uh, had traditional negative pressure wound therapy. Patient had this for about three weeks on their sternal incision. You could see it's an okay, you know, but it's not going very far and very fast. Uh, I put uh, ORC with silver and then um, actually placed negative pressure over this. And that's what it looks like. And within one week, of course, as Dot said, your results may vary. um, I clearly had more robust granulation and my wound surface area reduced by 15%. Uh, The tip for this is that If you're going to use the combination of this one approved collagen with this one approved uh, negative pressure wound therapy device, fenestration is required. And the reason it is required is the studies show that you will not achieve the um, 125 millimeters of mercury uh, negative pressure if you don't fenestrate your ORC collagen. So uh, you're going to want to do that. And then...
0: Oh, this is my lady. That's yours. My cases because, you know, edema is always the enemy in any kind of wound healing. You spread out your vessels, the perfusion is not as good. So this is a lady who had just moved into our area. Uh, when she was, she had multiple sclerosis. She was in a wheelchair. She uh, box fell on her leg during her move from her other state. Um, but she just kept working and she was, she was an amazing woman, even though she did everything from a, w- a wheelchair, but she has, was insensate. And so she did not feel that the, w- the pain in the womb, she did have uh, good biphasic pulses. So we felt comfortable moving on. So this is when she first came, you can see day one, you, what you can appreciate. And I can't point to, but she does have uh, about three and a half centimeters of undermining in those first two pictures. When we first identified her, um, we filled her with a gelling fiber and put her into a three layer wrap because we were going to try to get this uh, edema down. Uh, by day four, we, she was tolerating the wrap just very well. And just by reducing the volume, we're reducing the undermining already. And so by day 11, it was, it was cleaning up. We debrided her a little bit, and then we started one of the mechanical Uh, powered negative pressure devices, one of the more portable ones, because she was transferring back and forth. And to move a powered system with her was going to be difficult. And so you do have the ability to use compression therapy over uh, any kind of negative pressure wind therapy, but we commonly use it over the mechanically powered. So you can see by two weeks out, she's much uh, has better robust granulation tissue, her undermining is pretty much gone. uh, About two and a half weeks in Um, by three weeks, she's almost Completely free of any kind of undermining. And um, by, by a month in, a little over a month, we stopped the negative pressure. We just went to a collagen dressing. We had graduated her already to a two layer compression wrap. Um, and you can see she went on to completely close. So uh, it's, it's a stepwise you know, pro, um, project, you get the edema under control, you get the extra to under control, you get them cleaned up and put them into negative pressure. So all of these things are how we're looking at those barriers, right, Kathy? You're just figuring out along the way what we need to change and what we can do
1: to make the uh, improvement. So you want to take us out? Sure. So... Um, Advanced dressings and modalities, they're not a replacement for poor wound bed preparation. Um, I can't tell you how people spend a lot of money when they just really haven't done a good job looking at the wound bed. Um, And they're not a replacement when you don't prepare your patient either. Remember, advanced dressings and modalities should be used early and often because they will help speed things up. And you should be able to match those advanced modalities with the patient's need and the wound's need. So um, you can pair with each other and combine things to actually make your outcomes a whole lot better. I do wanna thank you all for coming today on behalf of both Dot and I, and um, we hope to see you again at some other time.
0: Hi, thank you.